Hey there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the growing conflict between Iran and Israel. We have Russia adding Uzbekistan to the list of willing participants in its reintegration efforts and the resurgence of Britain to the global stage. All of that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so the eviction ban um, has ended in the United States and that has left serious questions as to people's ability to find homes before potential eviction Uh, we'll have to see where this goes people have money from unemployment so really we'll just have to see whether or not people are sitting on enough cash to pay rent or if people are actually in a really, really tough spot and they get kicked out of their house. So, we'll watch this one. Yeah, and it probably won't take too long. The moratorium ended, I believe, what is it, Saturday? I believe Saturday. It was the 1st of August, so. Sunday, yeah, Sunday. Alright. And on the other side of the world... No, no, just the other side of the Americas, we have... Mario Montoya, who is currently set to be charged by the Attorney General's Office of Colombia. He's being charged by the Attorney General's Office for the extrajudicial killings of 104 civilians in the false positives scandal um, that happened, I believe, between 2002 to 2008, um, where in this scandal, people regular civilians were wrongly registered as guerrilla fighters this is in the midst of colombia's civil war if you remember and they were fighting but the fighting was between the government and the farc farce uh i believe that civil war only just recently ended uh not too long ago but this is one of the one of the tragedies of war i guess we could say where we have these 104 civilians who were killed, and now this guy, in the aftermath of the war, is being prosecuted. So, good things. Uh, the good thing is he's being prosecuted. The bad thing is these 104 people died. But we'll we'll move on now. We have French protests uh, and riots against the mandatory health passes, aka the vaccine passports. Um, these riots and protests have entered their oh i was about to say fourth their third week well it'll be fourth soon enough you know we know how the french are with their protests pretty sure the yellow vests are still out there uh just with significantly less coverage but um yeah so this can go on for a while uh and there's reports that the police uh, are losing control in certain places um just due to the sheer mass of people if you see the videos they're like swarming the streets kind of like uh when france instituted the lockdown back in um back in the fall of last year and there was videos with um the streets of paris just 
log jammed with cars bumper to bumper everyone was trying to leave so it's kind of like that except it's people uh instead of cars so massive backlash people really don't want this and we'll see um who blinks really because the government's not giving in and the protesters and the rioters aren't giving in either so we'll see we'll definitely have to see um, um, in Nigeria, we have 19 killed in jihadist attacks. Um, these attacks are in western Nigeria, um, where there's really just large jihadist activity in general, uh, in the Sahel region, which is sort of, sort of, if I had to describe where the Sahel is, it's, if you look on a map of the globe, and you can see the Sahara Desert, um, and then you see the, the little patch of green underneath the desert. It's where the desert meets that patch of green. That's sort of the Sahel. If I had to describe it without telling you the names of the countries involved. So we have major Islamist militancy in that region. That's also the region where a lot of this uh, French military interventions are happening. Because... Um, uh, but the French are further to the west uh, in most cases, although they do have a presence as far away as Chad, uh, which, funnily enough, did used to be a French colony, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. Colonialism? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Who knows? But we have jihadists. Um, would it be right to say on the rise or... More so just we're paying attention to them now because the jihadists in other regions are kind of being smothered by the news. Um, eh, interesting question to think about. But 19 killed, I believe 33 in total for that week. This was 19 was just in this one instance of this attack. So Nigeria has serious issues. We talked about Nigeria last episode and they were putting the that one leader for a separatist movement in their southeast in their southeast they are putting him on trial um for treason charges basically and i mentioned that that trial was probably gonna set the tone the foundation and the precedent moving forward for dealing with uh movements like his and probably will be extended for other groups that behave in well, semi-treasonous actions, uh, treasonous by definition of the government, mind you. Um, so we could very easily, if that court case goes uh, badly for that rebel leader, um, rebel as in secessionist, really, not like he's fighting a war, but if that court case goes badly for him and it sets the precedent that leaving is um, in fact illegal and anything that promotes or even resembles such actions can be labeled as treason we could see the nigerian government label these charges um against these jihadists attacking them uh, that's assuming they consider the jihadists domestic terrorists rather than foreign adversaries which they could technically classify as both but you could see them levy those charges against these people and they could get like really, really hefty um, sentences. And there could probably be lots of innocents caught in the crossfire as we 
just saw with the other story with Mario Montoya, who's being charged with the extrajudicial killings of 104 civilians. We could see something like that in Nigeria, depending on how this court case goes and depending on how far the government runs with a potential verdict that rules secession is bad. So, well, lots of things happening in Africa. Um, there's also Tigray, but taking a break from Tigray is just like we're taking a, a break from uh, the Taliban for a while. <clears throat> but I imagine they won't be too quiet for too long. And we'll probably be back to minor updates on those two in time. Although, speaking of Afghanistan, there are numerous countries now pushing for Afghan asylum measures. Um, there's the Czech Republic and the United States, to name a few, and they're basically trying to make accommodations for refugees leaving the country uh, to try to avoid the violence from the Civil War, basically reuniting, reuniting, well, eventually it'll reunite, but reigniting in full, rather than the low-intensity um, war that was going on when the U.S. was there. Because now the guns are turned against the Afghan government itself rather than the U.S. forces. So, I still believe the Taliban will win, but that's neither here nor there. We have lots of fallout surrounding that civil war. Uh, and one of the pieces of that fallout will be the former Soviet space. And I'll get to that in uh, a moment uh, towards the middle of the episode, I believe. But um, lots of fallout around the Afghan civil war. And we'll be really dealing with the consequences and the ramifications of that as we go. Um, so yeah, there's uh, asylum measures being taken by countries for the Afghan people fleeing. There's also France, who is outraged by the UK quarantine rules. The UK has levied new rules excuse me, that mandate French citizens have to be quarantined for 100 days. Wait, no, 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 that's not 100, that's 10. Oh my goodness, I'd be I'd be upset too if I had to be quarantined for 100 days. But the UK government has mandated that French citizens, regardless of vaccine status, have to be quarantined for 10 days um, before they can move about through the country. Where, And the reason this has drawn outrage is because other countries, people who come from other countries, uh, don't have to go through that if they're vaccinated. So, the French are upset, and I guess this is just a tit-for-tat for the, the troubles that the French have been causing the British in these last few months. Um, the one that comes off the top of my head was the fishing scandal, where the French fishermen basically blocked um, this one island off the coast of France that belongs to Britain. Their fishermen blocked the fishers from that island, who were British, from leaving. I believe it's the island of Jordan. And the British sent a destroyer uh, to clear them out. So, I guess the British and French are going back to normal. Um, in terms of their rivalry and their endless uh, shitting on one another. But um, we'll, we'll see if this evolves into something more um, less healthy um, than what it is right now. But, um, well, yeah... Lots of lots of tit for tat between these two. And we'll probably see more of that to come. Because 
neither of them seem, you know, willing to step back and say, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Um, but to be honest, the French kind of share the blunt of the brain. The what? The what? The blunt of the blame is what they have. And they're reaping the whirlwind now. On the other side of the world, we have China, who has begun to reinstate lockdown measures. Uh, they've done this in certain provinces, as they're afraid of the COVID cases from the variant, uh, the Delta, that's the one. I know there's other ones, uh, Omega, and another one. There's three. I forget what the third one was. No one talks about it or the second one. Everyone only talks about the Delta. Uh, so, yeah, I guess the Chinese are afraid of the Delta. Um, so they're locking down again. We'll see what that does to them and their economy. Haiti, however, uh, is in a bit of a different predicament. Because their, <clears throat> their president got assassinated. And now their prime minister is promising new elections as soon as possible. So Haiti's in a bit of a delicate situation right now. Because, you know, when leaders get assassinated, that opens the door for wholesale changes in government and the attitude a government takes towards its people. So we'll see if they hold, hold firm on, you know, their whole democratic values or if they go somewhere more authoritarian in nature. It is possible, and we should be on the lookout uh, for those interested, mind you. But I'll just throw that out there. I think they'll be fine. I think they will be fine. But you never know. The world is a very strange place at times. Um, but uh, speaking of strange places and wholesale changes in government... There have been corruption probes that are being opened into Tunisia's majority party, and that is Enada. We talked about Tunisia last episode, I believe, as well, um, and their political crisis. That's basically Nepal 2.0, where their parliament got dissolved by their head of state, or in this case, frozen and dismissed. And it's causing massive political uproar. And the courts are probably going to have to get involved. Um, although I'll say that this one has garnered a lot more attention than what happened in Nepal. Nepal was ignored com almost completely. But now when Tunisia does what really seems like the same to me. Because we covered the Nepal story uh, a lot on the podcast. Uh, from beginning to end. Really. So, the story that seems basically the same is garnering a whole lot more attention. I guess it's, I guess it's just where Tunisia is. <clears throat> it's in the Mediterranean, so a lot more countries um, of note are taking note. Um, whereas, I guess Nepal wouldn't get that from anyone other than, say, China and India. But given... The status of the geopolitics between China and India, I guess neither of them wanted to push the envelope um, any more than it already is. Will that change in the future? Probably. They're both building infrastructure on their border um, and deploying more troops to their border. So I'd imagine Nepal is going to get crushed or they'll, f they'll feel the weight from two sides and they'll be a rock in a hard place 
in almost a literal sense in time. But with Tunisia, um, they get a lot more diplomatic attention from the international community. And there have been calls for them to maintain the democratic course. There have been calls for them to stick to their constitution. And really just a much larger uproar from outsiders than what we saw with Nepal. So it'll be interesting um, as this develops to watch the similarities and the differences between this and the Nepal case. So I guess we can look forward to that. And as we observe the world. Um, but yeah, corruption probes have been opened into Tunisia's majority party. Enada, we talked about them. Um, and, well, that's obviously because the, the man who froze and dismissed the, <laughs> the Congress, well, their parliament is of the party. So corruption probes have been opened into them and we'll see if they go anywhere. Cause I'm pretty sure the courts are going to have to rule in on this just like in Nepal. And the, ultimately there's probably just going to have to be another election because that's how the situation in Nepal ended. So we'll see how things go down between now and that next election. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes on this one. I have a feeling, I have a feeling we'll get more stories out of this. And we just m mentioned India and China a moment ago. They have, uh, this is a good news. This is a good news right here. India and China have resumed high-level talks on de-escalation along their shared border, the referred to as the Line of Actual Control, the LAC. Um, so that's a good development. Um, the the people were in charge of these talks um, were previously just not talking to each other for like three months, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaking the story. But um, they weren't talking to each other or communicating for three months. And over those three months, we saw a lot of the escalations that we witnessed. So now there's the opportunity that we see some of that um, get pulled back and stepped back on. But um, we'll really have to watch because I'm not entirely sure if either India or China are willing to do so. Because they're, again, they're both building infrastructure along their border. They're both positioning more and more troops along the border uh, in tandem with that increased infrastructure and therefore the increased logistical ability to house more troops and deploy more troops. And, whoa, I don't know. It seems, it seems like a pressure cooker. De-escalation would e quickly ease the tension at least between India and China. India still has Pakistan to deal with in its northwest in Kashmir. But this pressure cooker between India and China can still be mitigated. Um, I would say it's more likely to happen than India and Pakistan reaching a reconciliation. And given the animosities between India and China right now, that says a lot, I would think. But nonetheless, these talks are a good sign. So we'll take what we can get. Uh, especially when you have a cold war between these two. And, well, you, you don't want it going the same way as the old Cold War. And you definitely don't want the same high-stakes nuclear war uh, looming over it like there was in the last one. So 
These talks are good. Very, very good. Meanwhile, Russia's Vladimir Putin has made remarks uh, during a government meeting, um, that, was, that being a meeting between him and his other chiefs of staff, um, he made a remark on the effects of U.S. inflation on the Russian and the global economy, namely remarks on the rising food prices, to which um, the Russian financial industry, and I believe their bank, their national bank, has decided to raise interest rates to sort of curb the inflation. We'll, we'll see if we'll see if it works. I know Russia's been perhaps the most financially responsible country um, and had the most financially responsible um, response to the pandemic of any country, any major country, certainly any major country that I know of. They still have a budget surplus and a trade surplus. Whereas the United States is printing trillions and then trillions more, uh, China is still printing um, and there. They went into full lockdown. Russia didn't commit to the lockdowns as much as other countries did. And they were pretty early in removing their restrictions. And they don't seem to be going back into lockdown either. They have a vaccine and they've been exporting it and gaining immense soft power from it, I'll say. So, the relative power of Russia right now is financially incredible. Uh, when you go through a disaster like that and you have good finances and everyone else doesn't, um, that sets you up for success in the long term. It really does. And that's pretty important, especially when you consider Russia's current expansionist aims right now. And we'll get into that in a, a little bit. But really, really good for Russia. Definitely, definitely just one of the reasons they're the, they're the favorite to watch. Well, for me, definitely one of those reasons. Uh, and last but not least, we have wildfires in Turkey, southern Turkey, that have resulted so far in six deaths. And, well, the Russians have stepped in. And Putin has promised to continue the relief efforts to Turkey. So, good diplomacy on the part of Russia towards its neighbors. Um, certainly a part of that grand strategy that I may or may not have picked up on um, way back when. And I'll elaborate on it in, when we get to our segment on Russia. But, um, yeah, that's the rapid-fire news. And we'll get to the meat of the episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat. So we'll start off this part of the episode with Iran and Israel. We haven't talked about these two in, well... So anyway, Israel... <laughs> um, Israel had an oil tanker that was en route to the UAE the United Arab Emirates, uh, and it was hit off the coast of Oman. Um, so the UAE is sort of in the Persian Gulf, and on your way out, you go past Oman, and you, as you're sailing along that same coastline, 
uh, you go past Oman, you get to Yemen. And so that's sort of the, the geography we're looking at here. Um, so Israel's oil tanker was hit off the coast of Oman. It was going toward the UAE. Um, and a U.S. destroyer has been called in to escort the tanker to safety. Um, so we know that the tanker wasn't sunk. It wasn't destroyed, but it was heavily damaged. And I believe some people were, uh, a decent number of people, a decent number of people were hurt. But luckily, the ship wasn't sunk. That would have been a tragedy. Uh, now, Iran, uh, surprise, surprise, has been accused of being responsible for the attack. And it is speculated that they even used a UAV, which is an unmanned aerial vehicle, it's speculated that Iran used a UAV to do this attack. Um, and this has had the effect of throwing dry wood onto the existing fires of animosity between these two countries. And this incident, um, which I guess also adds dry wood onto the fire, um, but for unrelated reason... Uh, it comes at a time when the U.S. State Department has approved the sale of 18 heavy lift helicopters to Israel, which total at around $3.4 billion. So, pretty hefty sale. Now, if only we weren't printing money by the trillions. But I digress. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with fresh heads of state in both of these countries... Conflict does seem likely. It does seem likely. You have Iran, you have Israel. They're working against one another. Um, they're accusing one another of being responsible for all their problems. And the people are on board with these accusations. The people inside the, these countries, mind you. So, we have um, a standoff, really. We have a standoff. Uh, it's not like this is new. We, we, we've been talking about these two almost non-stop, constantly. Uh, especially when we talk about spheres of influence and potential expansion of them in Lebanon. We've talked about these two countries a lot. Um, even when I'm not talking directly about them, I'm talking about them indirectly. But I guess we're back to talking about them directly now. So, what do we have? Well, we have in Iran, who may or may not be responsible for hitting this tanker with a UAV. Um, but regardless of if it is or not, the tensions have risen because of this incident. So this, we just have to watch and see how things go. Because again, we have fresh, brand new heads of state in both of these countries. Uh, I believe... Their names have escaped me, but I know that they both have brand new prime ministers. Uh, there's a brand new prime minister in Israel and a brand new president in Iran. Uh, and both of them have already been sucked into the anti-other sort of mindset and mentality just for the sake of solidifying themselves as their own political figure. And that in and of itself while potentially very effective, 
is dangerous because it can lead you down a path where you do things that probably aren't good for you physically, but are good for you politically. Uh, or at least that's the estimation. We could see Israel and Iran start ramping things up under the leadership of these new heads of state because both of them are seeking to gain legitimacy within their countries. Um, and that's sort of the effect of being in a crisis where even though you've won an election, people are looking to you for a solution to the problem. So when you're put under pressure like that, you might try something wild, something crazy, something unthinkable. Will they go to war? Uh, not in a declared manner, I'll say that. You can, we could argue that these two countries are already at war, but they're not going to declare it. That would invite too much, well, outsiders. That would invite too many outsiders. Um, and would probably not get them reelected. So I don't see them starting a war between another uh at least uh, until one of them is backed into the corner then we might see one of them start a war but in the meantime i see them i see the potential for these leaders to be pushed towards these well jingoist uh, jingoist sentiments where it's like we can go to war we have the means we have the righteousness we are more righteous than they are, and they are evil, we are not, therefore, we are in the right. They are attacking us, because both of them believe this. Both of them believe this, and to an extent both of them are right, they are attacking us, therefore, we are justified in our response. And because they have attacked us for so long, doing so much damage... We are justified in any response we give to them. So you can see how that is an extremely slippery slope that these two brand new freshman leaders could easily fall into. I'll just leave that on the table. We'll see if they actually do fall into it and what the ramifications of that may end up being as time goes on. But for the time being, we'll probably see more of the same. And that is conflict, but not declared conflict, not open conflict. We'll most likely see this conflict happen through the indirect means. Israel will continue to use its special forces and its covert operatives to sabotage and undermine Iran domestically. We've seen them murder political uh, leaders in Iran. We've seen them murder scientific and technological leaders in Iran. Um, we've seen them really just infiltrate Iran to an incredible degree and carry out these assassinations, these high-level, high-profile assassinations. And Iran is reasonably upset about them. So that's what Israel is probably going to continue to do. Iran is going to continue to exploit the fighting in Palestine to sabotage and undermine Israel domestically. Um, they're, they're putting their full weight behind the Palestinians, whereas before, uh, it seemed as though the, nas the nations of the Middle East were sort of 
backing off from the Israel-Palestine issue, and then the fighting happened, and all of them have sort of ganged up on Israel and backed Palestine in this. So, and Iran has been a real leader in that charge, uh, with Turkey falling behind. So you have Iran backing the Palestinians, who are fighting Israel basically on Israel's home soil, specifically Hamas. Not we're not just gonna blame the entire race here, but specifically Hamas fighting against Israel and its military. We're gonna see Iran continue to back them up. We may even see them increase their support for groups like Hamas, um, which may tip the scales uh, in the, what is it, the the power struggle between them and Hezbollah over control over Palestine as a whole. We could see something like that happen, uh, especially as the tensions between Israel and Iran rise. And especially as more incidents like this, where you have a tanker that gets hit, Iran is blamed, and the Iranian people are indignant because of it. We could see greater support for such a thing, with uh, such a thing being intervening on the part of the Palestinians, specifically Hamas. And that could tip the scales and give Hamas greater influence in Palestine, which would mean more resources to do what it's doing against Israel. And they would even have a foreign backer behind them in Iran. It could happen. It's a bit of a long shot now, but you can very easily see how something like that could develop. Um, especially when you have not a single call for de-escalation between these two. It's, it's almost worse than India and China. But, and I'll argue... I'll make my case that the terrain here is much easier to fight in. You have flat desert. Oh boy. That's that's such a impediment to ground operations. Well, compared to mountains it is. The desert is an obstacle by itself, but it, how much of an obstacle when you have planes and artillery and rockets and when you're fighting indirectly, not you're necessarily using your own army, but when you're fighting through indirect means, how much of an obstacle is a desert? It's it's not much of an obstacle at all anymore, because the people fighting are already on the soil of your enemy, whether that's covert operatives, or dissident minorities within your within your enemy country. So we'll we'll see continued conflict between these two. And we may see it escalate um, just due to the freshman status of their leaders and any rash decisions they may make in order to secure legitimacy within their country. Uh, and whatever backlash that may, any of their actions may have on the other. Because if Israel, their new prime minister, does something rash that annoys the Iranian people where well, they're going to expect something more from their new president. And if their new president, the new president of Iran, does something rash to Israel, then the Israelis are going to demand even more from their new prime minister. We could be watching the beginning of a very, very bad negative feedback loop. But only time will tell. Only time will tell. But I'll 
say this now, that given the shifting tides in the Middle East right now, uh, I would say that those tides point towards Iran coming out on top in the end, um, however far away that end might be. I do see Iran, unless something major changes, um, I see Iran coming out on top. Um, it's just so far a matter of how well is Israel going to be able to fight uh, to the end. If they choose to fight at all, you know, this showdown doesn't necessarily need to happen between Israel and Iran, but it's happening, and I do not see Israel winning. But they can do a lot of damage in the meantime. So we'll have to watch. Especially if if, if something goes down between these two. And uh, a country by the name of Turkey may or may not step in to fill a power vacuum. And no one is strong enough to oppose them. We'll have to see. The Middle East is a whole lot more interesting these days than it otherwise was. At least... For me personally, I'll just stress that. But another interesting region of the world, the former Soviet space. As we head on over to the homeland of our family favorite. Oh, I guess the borderlands of our family favorite. And that's Russia. Russia. Now, Russia, I believe I brought this up in the last episode, is making major power plays to secure its borderlands. And I mean the former Soviet borderlands, not the borders of contemporary Russia. They're going beyond that. I guess you could call them a Super Saiyan 3. Even further beyond is where they're going. And I'll start this off by this one story. Where we have 1,500 troops from Russia and Uzbekistan who have participated in joint exercises... And get this, these exercises are along Uzbekistan's border with Afghanistan. So, 1,500 troops between Russia and Uzbekistan combined have participated in joint exercises along Uzbekistan's border with Afghanistan. So, not some remote region inside of Uzbekistan or Russia, but hard up against the border. Now, Russia has also had Tajikistan do similar things, uh, not necessarily uh, a drill or exercises, but they've had Tajikistan bolster its forces along the border with Afghanistan. The Russian troops are there as well along that border with Afghanistan. And you start to notice a pattern, at least in Central Asia, because at least in Central Asia, you start to notice a pattern. Now, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. Back when the Caucasus War happened between Armenia and Azerbaijan, when it ended and it was clear that Russia was the big winner in it all, uh, basically controlling who can and can't come in and out of Armenia and Azerbaijan, I saw them sort of hunkering down and digesting the Caucasus because they... They got real quiet on their foreign policy for a little bit. Uh, not for too long, but, you know, they didn't press the advantage and try to go further than that. So they're digesting the caucuses right now, and they have all three of the republics there. They have Georgia, they who they beat in a war. They have Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan, who they're keeping from fighting a war against each other right now. 
And when that war ended, I brought up that that is one um, of their former Soviet zones that they have occupied in full. Um, Ukraine and the Central Asia, the Central Asian republics, I felt, would be next on the list. I felt that the Balkans, well, not the Balkans, the Baltics, which is Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, I felt like they would be last on the list of countries to be reintegrated into the Greater Russian Federation, is what I what I've begun calling them. I thought they'd be last just because they're a part of NATO, so they'd be the hardest to get back for Russia. Belarus is already in compliance, essentially. There's the Union State, um, and the fact that Belarus is being diplomatically isolated um, because of what happened in its elections and because of the incident that went down between them and Lithuania um, when Lithuania backed the Belarusian opposition. But those things happened later on, after the war in the Caucasus had ended. But when the war in the Caucasus ended, I said... Russia is going to digest the Caucasus, and they'll go in one of two places. They'll go to Ukraine and sort of finish up their business there, or they'll go to Central Asia. I wasn't sure how they were going to pull off the Central Asia, but I knew that it would eventually be on the list of things that Russia would go after, especially since the Caucasus is taken care of now, uh, for all intents and purposes. And it is clear now that Russia has shifted gears towards Central Asia, uh, their exposed periphery, so to speak. And with what's happening in Afghanistan, we can see how they're going about it. They're using the tide of refugees coming out of Afghanistan as an excuse to position their troops on the former Soviet border. They've projected their power all the way out to the former Soviet border. They have Tajikistan. They have troops in Tajikistan. They have troops in Kyrgyzstan. They have troops in Kazakhstan. All of that is a part of the CSTL, the Collective Treaty Organization, which left Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. So uh, they had three out of the five within their sphere of influence. Um, deep within the sphere of influence, I should say. But Uzbekistan was sort of staying out um, by choice. And Turkmenistan, I guess, is sort of the same. They quite, don't quite know what they want to do. But with Afghanistan and all these refugees and these migrants fleeing the country and the threat that is posed of radical Islam spreading into Central Asia and even into the Russian Siberia, um, Russia's gotten really, really anxious about their border security. And I brought up how their border with Kazakhstan is indefensible, not just towards an army, you know, but towards illegal immigration. How are you going to police that massive border with Kazakhstan if, if at all? You just can't, not really, not without something, not without some huge effort. Um, so it would be easier to control the flow 
before it gets to Central Asia, which is wide, vast, and open, and hard to keep tra- tabs on people as they move about it. And that's exactly what Russia's doing. They hunkered down in Tajikistan, who has a border with Afghanistan. They've put more troops there. They've gotten Tajikistan to station their troops along the Afghan border, in tandem with the Russian ones. And now they've even gotten Uzbekistan to join them in this effort. So Uzbekistan is being slowly but surely added to the list. I said it in the opening. They're being added to the list of willing participants in Russia's reintegration effort. A reintegration of the former Soviet space, centered around Russia itself. Now, this is... This reintegration seems to come with a great deal more autonomy on the part of the constituent parts, but I guess that's sort of the, I guess that's sort of a reflection of the times we're in, where direct occupation and removal of any and all self-governance would be, well, resisted, whereas direct occupation with the consent of the people living there um, gets you more influence it expands where you can and can't operate and you don't get that same sort of resistance that you would through occupying a foreign country. Instead, you get the compliance. You get help from the people you're occupying because they ask you to be there. They want you to be there. And in time, as we see with some of the U.S. allies, we may see these countries in Russia's sphere of influence become dependent on Russia's occupation. And I believe that may be the end goal, really. At least until times change and something happens where direct occupation and political integration becomes the norm of the day. But I don't know how long, uh, I don't know when or that'll happen. But for the time being, we can see this sort of decentralized integration of states um, happening in the former Russian, the former Soviet space. They have Kazakhstan, they have Kyrgyzstan, they have Tajikistan. Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are busy fighting each other over their border. And what we have in the Caucasus, you have Georgia, who's been taken out completely. They, they don't have a military. They, they got neutered in 2008 when they fought a war against Russia. A war that they declared against Russia, mind you, but a war that the Russians were more than happy to win. <laughs> but um, you also have in the Caucasus, uh, another story here, the Armenian Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, who has put forth the possibility of having Russian troops be positioned at stations along the Armenian-Azerbaijani border. Um, and this is to keep the peace, ensure safe travel between these two entities, and to ensure a proper demarcation of the border between these two countries. So you have there a solution to the end of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, a more a more permanent end to the conflict because there's rising tensions now still even months after the war. And Russia sort of put a lid on it, keeping it from getting out. And the Armenians are more than happy to 
keep the Russians there, and I guess the Azerbaijanis are compliant as well, because they don't seem to be complaining about it necessarily. So, we have active participation and compliance on the part of these two occupied countries right now. They're occupied by Russian forces, but they don't respond to Russia as an occupying force. They respond to it as a peacekeeping force. But Russia gets to control who comes in and out. Uh, well, they have the final say-so, I'll say that. Um, so that's the sort of reintegration we're looking at, where Russia basically takes a page out of the U.S. handbook of allies and bases beyond your borders, except their bases and allies are the former Soviet republics. And basically, Russia expands its borders indirectly through this means, um, and it's working. It's working. They have the Caucasus, and we may see that solution of them using troops uh, that Prime Minister Pashinyan of Ar Armenia has proposed. We may see that happen in Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan, who they're still fighting it out over their border and the demarcation of it. They might see that this is working in the Caucasus, this being a Russian occupation of the border between the two. They might see that as a viable solution to their own border skirmishes. If you, because neither of them trust each other. Armenia doesn't trust the Azerbaijanis. The Azerbaijanis don't trust the Armenians. So instead, let the Russians patrol the border for you. Done deal. You, you can pull your troop back because you know that the border is guarded. And you know that it's not the enemy who's guarding the border. We may see the same happen between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, where they invite the Russians in to guard their borders, uh, their mutual border, and to establish the demarcation themselves. And with the border guarded, both of them will be willing to pull troops off of the border, which will then be the de-escalation needed to prevent instances where you have border guards shooting at each other. And you'll create peace. Peace. A, a tenuous and working peace with the active participants of countries who were formerly fighting each other. And we have Russia doing that. And we may see it in the, the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks in time. But for the time being, Russia has deployed troops to the Tajik border with Afghanistan and the Uzbek border with Afghanistan, which only leaves Turkmenistan, one of the five Central Asian republics, is left. Only one. Wow. Just wow. Um, that's some pretty stunning progress in the rather short time because we're only talking about a matter of months here um since the end of the caucasus war in just a matter of months and russia has already made its move in central asia with stunning success and the u.s withdrawal from afghanistan has sort of sort of helped this situation and moved along because the f the refugees from afghanistan has been the primary excuse for doing these measures but it's worked, and it's worked incredibly well. And we'll have to see how they go about Turkmenistan, but 
Turkmenistan can effectively serve as a buffer state between them and anyone else, anyone else being really just Iran, or any Islamist faction, uh, jihadist Islamist, mind you, that may arise from the Middle East. But that's almost all of Central Asia secured. Almost all of it, in just a matter of months. So, what happens when they have Uzbekistan? Well, they'll probably digest Central Asia. And I imagine that'll take a, a little bit longer than the Caucasus, just due to the sheer size and the vast difference in the population size as well. But from there, Russia will be able to devote its full attention towards Ukraine and finishing up the fighting there. And that's when things will get interesting. Because the Caucasus barely caught anyone else's attention. Central Asia is gone completely unnoticed by anyone who isn't immediately proximate to Central Asia. But when they start making moves towards Ukraine and forcing the issue of a union state between Belarus or even making moves towards destabilizing the Baltics, that's going to get people's attention. And by then, all of Russia's other flanks will have been secured. They have a strategic partnership with China, which basically covers their entire Far East. Their entire Far East, their flank there is secured by China's existence as an ally rather than an adversary. And the Caucasus are covered. Crimea is covered. Central Asia is covered. That leaves Ukraine, Belarus... Kind of Belarus. Belarus is a active participant in this reintegration as well. But that leaves Ukraine and the Baltics. When Central Asia is done, when Russia is done with Central Asia, Ukraine is up next. And we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, but on the note of the potential for Russia to occupy the border between Armenia and Azerbaijan, I should also state... And mention before we move on that Pashinian also proposed that members of the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, or the Minsk group uh, could observe the border as well. But um, Russia would likely go along with the first two of these three courses of action due to its ability to unilaterally dominate the conversation through either direct occupation of Armenia and Azerbaijan's border or through CSTO observation, of which Russia is the dominant player in that, in that faction. So, either one would play to Russia's strengths, and would depend on Russian logistical ability to happen anyway. The Minsk group, however, um, would mean diluted Russian influence in the Caucasus, but, but considering how minor of a role the Minsk group played during the Caucasus War, I see it as being unlikely to be the player of choice uh, when it comes to settling the border dispute. So, uh, so I believe one of the first two options is going to go down, and most likely will be the direct occupation by Russia itself. That's what I see for the border situation between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and potentially even... Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And that would really change the geostrategic calculus. Um, 
for Russia anyway, and they'd be able to focus almost all their attention to their west in Ukraine and the Baltics. And we'll, we'll see where that goes. But uh, before we move away from Russia, I want to bring up um, that they have good relations. They're building up relations, but who are they building them up with? They're building up their relations with the countries beyond the Soviet borders. They're building up relations with Turkey. They're sending aid and relief and tourists to Turkey, being really, really friendly towards Turkey, who's um, being awfully shady towards the Russians, I'll say that much. But they're being really friendly towards Turkey. They're being really friendly towards Iran. They've worked with Iran throughout the whole um, ISIS saga and throughout the whole Syrian civil war. So they're really friendly with Turkey, even if Turkey doesn't reciprocate the feelings. The feelings aren't mutual. They're really friendly with Iran, who I believe the the feelings are mutual, and Iran appreciates having a friend. They're really friendly with China and Mongolia. They're less friendly with Japan, but Japan... Um, is effectively countered by China's existence. Um, they're friendly with North Korea. Uh, North Korea loves the Russians. And they're building up relations with Afghanistan. Uh, specifically, though, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, otherwise known as the Taliban. They're building up relations there and establishing diplomatic ties. Well, it's the other way around, really, but the Russians are allowing it to happen. They're allowing the Taliban to establish diplomatic ties with Russia. Because I'm pretty sure they see, as well as I do, the writing on the wall. And that writing spells out the Taliban's going to win the war. So may as well let them get on your good side. And get on their good side as well by participating in their diplomatic mission. So they're going to have good relations with the Taliban on the other side of this. Strangely enough, given they went to war with Afghanistan in the 80s, but I digress. So, they have good relations with all the countries who would otherwise be neighbors and have a border with the Soviet Union. So, all the countries that exist just beyond Russia's borderlands, they're establishing really good relations with while they're integrating the states between them and those countries who they've established good relations with. Very, very interesting. And even now, we're seeing that play itself out. But now, we'll move on to the last thing that I wanted to talk about. And that was Britain. I wanted to talk about Britain before we closed out today's episode. Now, Oh, the story behind how I got here was pretty, pretty entertaining, so I'll, I'll tell it. So I was ranting to myself about how the actions of the British Navy um, accomplished nothing and endangered the lives of many people, um, and I would argue needlessly. So I was ranting to myself for about an hour on how none of it made sense and how everything the Chinese and the Russians are doing strategically made sense for them to do and really just roasting my own side really and then after i decided to put my personal biases aside for a moment uh to see if i could salvage or piece together something maybe i was missing something maybe there was something there 
that I could see, um, whether or not the British themselves saw it or not, I could see potentially something that could play itself forward and eventually become recognized later on. Sort of like how we've watched the growth of Turkey, the growth of Russia, and even the growth and the establishment of the Iranian sphere of influence and the string of pearls and the new Cold War in East Asia. So I wanted to see if I could find something in that, uh, in what Britain was doing, whether they were conscious of it or not. And what I saw was something rather interesting. I'll say that. No, I'll say that I first that I saw a mess, but I was I, I did see something beyond the mess too. Um, and we'll start by talking about their HMS Queen Elizabeth that made its way to the South China Sea. Um, and this is going to lead up to my observation, all the things I'm going to talk about. Their, their HMS Queen Elizabeth, which is the UK's supercarrier, one of their two supercarriers, uh, it made its way to the South China Sea. It departed a, a couple of months ago for the South China Sea, and it made it there. Uh, I believe it's leaving now, though, so um, nothing was accomplished, <laughs> but it will be participating in joint naval exercises in the Philippines Sea later in August. Um, then there was also the Crimea incident. Uh, we had that a couple weeks back, and that was where the UK sailed a destroyer into the Black Sea. It got really close to Crimea, specifically the city of Sevastopol, where Russia has a major naval base, and the Russians responded by firing warning shots and dropping bombs over the ship, uh, and in the ship's um, movement path, as if it was trying to hit the ship. Now that itself sparked conversations in China as to whether or not they should do the same if something happened in waters near China and we'll we'll see what the final verdict on that is um whenever the Chinese get around to it because a lot a decent number of them are saying the Russians they're criticizing the Russians for not hitting the ship for letting it sail by and saying that the Russians didn't do enough but a lot of people are saying the Russians uh stood up for themselves uh and really the criticism uh, is there is that maybe they didn't stand up enough. Maybe they didn't send a strong enough message. Uh, Putin himself doesn't believe that hitting the ship and sinking it would have caused World War III. So you can sort of see where the sentiments are going towards actions like what the British and even the Americans are doing. Will Which I believe may or may not cause a major war. Because we... We know how countries respond when their ships get sunk. But the Queen Elizabeth made its way to the South China Sea. It left the sea and is based somewhere in the Philippines right now, or at least it's heading there. There was a destroyer that went to the Crimea, uh, got shot at, and it's on its way back home. But these two instances, while not accomplishing all that much, uh, namely because they don't exactly have a stated aim, um, they have shown more than they've accomplished. And I'll explain. What they've shown is that, one, 
They've shown the reach of the UK's Navy. Think about it. They had one destroyer, and it sailed all the way into the deepest depths of the Black Sea. And I mean that in terms of um, how far away it went, not so, not in terms of it getting sunk to the bottom of the sea. But it sailed all the way there, all the way up to Sepastopol, like within the 12-mile range, to the point where it got shot at. And then it sailed back home. The Queen Elizabeth sailed all the way to the South China Sea, which is extremely far from home, and is going to stick around in the area. Not in the sea itself, but it's going to stick in the area. It's going to stick around uh, for a time before moving elsewhere. So we have the UK demonstrating, even if unintentionally, the range and the reach of its navy. Uh, And the second thing that these instances have shown is the risks that the UK's Navy is willing to take in order to follow through on whatever it's tasked with doing. So while its current tasks and obligations are inconclusive ones that can't be defined very specifically, in the future, when it is given a specific a easy to define task that is achievable we may see this same sort of posterity and vigor in achieving these aims and these goals that could make the UK Navy a very feared force yet again on the high seas um, we could see that we, we really could see that um, but right now the UK's Navy is small, especially when compared to what it used to be, which is ridiculously huge. However, this weakness today presents for the UK Navy of tomorrow a, a special opportunity to the British, and that is the opportunity to build a brand new fleet from scratch designed with the weapons of the time and designed to combat the challenges of the time rather than having a large uh progressively being progressively outdated fleet that is not necessarily equipped to deal with the challenges of the new age britain gets to build from square one they have two supercarriers now and they can build their navy around that They can build destroyers with lots of anti-ship missiles. They can put drones on these carriers uh, with great range. They can build cruisers uh, with whatever purpose in mind that you want a cruiser to have. They can do a lot. And they can do it how they want to do it because there's nothing weighing them down. Um, They can... They can build their brand new... uh, They can build a brand new fleet from scratch without being weighed down by say older war older warships older theories and outdated doctrines based on those older ships and older theories it's also the UK navy is not weighed down with the maintenance cost of a large pre-existing navy 
that would otherwise eat up the funds for new ship designs and new ship construction. Instead, those funds can go towards ship designs and ship construction. Meaning Britain can put the the most of its resources that it can allocate towards the Navy, it can put those towards these new ships rather than maintaining old ones. Um, at least while it's in the build-out phase, once it has a big Navy, which it will have eventually, once it has a big Navy, it'll run into all those same problems. But for right now, in this era, as we play it forward for the next 50 years... Britain has the advantage of starting out fresh. And we may see that come to fruition in the near future. Because it's going to take time for them to build it out. They're not building ships as fast as China. But they can build a navy to compete with their peer powers. And I imagine eventually they may come to blows with Turkey. But that'll, that'll be something to watch when we get to that road. I view Turkey being more likely to go to war with France and Britain to be more likely to go to war with France than for Britain and Turkey to go to war with each other. But when we see wars like that happen, it is likely the British will have a large, shiny, brand new navy outfitted with all the brand new kicks and whistles of the modern age and designed with any counters, if we have them, towards um, the problems that face a Navy and the challenges that face them in the modern age. Uh, put simply, put simply, Britain has a fresh start and their strength, while not being on par with the top three great powers, the United States, China, and Russia, their power is growing and in time, Britannia may just rule the waves again we'll just have to wait and see but that is all i have for you today i hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast we are observing changing times the world is changing but we are gonna have fun watching it together now i've been your host hi sean wade and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.